Psalm 28. Well, you turn there, allow me to welcome you this morning and invite you back tonight at 5. Um, this will be our monthly Q&A night. You know, I always like to uh, tease what the Q&A, Q&A night is going to be. So uh, my tease this morning is um, Jeopardy style. I'm going to tell you what the answer to the question is right now, but I'm not going to tell you what the question is. The answer to the question is the indivisibility of God's law. So come back and figure out what question elicits that answer. Tonight at 5. We'll have Q&A night. Let's begin by reading this psalm. Psalm 28, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and tarry them forever. You know, there are some things that are uh, quite easy to love. And then there are other things you have to learn to love. So I was thinking of an example of something that is easy to love and one that came to mind is cupcakes. I find cupcakes quite easy to love. Um, never have I had to sit my children down to diligently instill in them a love of cupcakes. I haven't had to do it. It came naturally. That's an easy sell. But you also know there are other things which, if you come to love them, it's only through the, a, a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of diligence. So I was thinking about that. What's something you kind of have to learn to love? Well, for many of us, that thing is exercise. It is for me. You know, if you've been sedentary, at first exercise is intimidating and it's grueling, and it's no fun, but you stick with it. You develop a habit. Maybe you begin to feel better. You see some gains in your strength or your endurance. Maybe you get into a new sport, and you learn to love something that at first was very unpleasant and repulsive to you. And, and I even think it's the case that the thing you have to learn to love is often better and more wholesome than the easy-to-love thing. And so a hard-won love of exercise is a more wholesome love than a love of cupcakes. And I'm going to argue that the same is often true when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to God. There are certain attributes of God that at first blush are easy to love. On their face, superficially, this, it's just an easy, it's an easy thing to accept. The idea that God can forgive me, the idea that God can answer my prayers, that's an easy sell for most folks. There are certain Bible texts describing God that we readily affirm the truth of and enthusiastically amen because we want them to be true. And they jive with what it is that we want from life. And so, yes, of course, when God fits into that picture, we're we're ready to affirm that. But then there are other attributes of God that I think are tougher pills to swallow. There are other texts in the Bible we are not, not so ready to amen or to amen so heartily. 
And I wonder if Psalm 28 is one of those passages. So this is a psalm about God's judgment. That's what the psalm is about. The psalmist cries out to God to save him and to judge his evil enemies. To, to quote him a few lines. He wants God to quote, give them according to their work and their evil deeds. He wants God to render them their due reward. He wants God to tear them down. He's asking God to judge people, to consign them to the destruction they deserve. And then in the last few verses of the psalm, when it seems like God has answered his cries, the psalmist is rejoicing in God's judgment. And so I have to ask, do you find this idea that God judged people and that God's people might pray for God to judge people, do you find this idea easy to love or hard to love? To put it another way, are you likely to find this psalm cross-stitched and framed on someone's walls? Is God's judgment sweet to our ears like it was the psalmist's? Or is it more bitter? Is it an acquired taste? One of the marks of genuine spiritual maturity is to learn to think God's thoughts after him, all of them. To learn to love all of what God loves. To learn to value all of what God values. To adopt God's will and God's plans as our highest goods. And a part of that process will be to learn to love things like God's judgment. And I think that's what this psalm is encouraging us to do. So what I want to do this morning is in the first part of our study, dig into the psalm, just talk through it. And then in the second part, examine what it is that we unearth from our digging. So number one, the first five verses contain a cry, a desperate cry for judgment. Um, the psalmist here is in some sort of predicament. The problem with many of the psalms, we really wish we could know the exact situation. If this is David writing, we'd love to know exactly what time in his life this described. You just don't always know. But there's some sort of predicament. The predicament is dragging on. God is yet to deliver him. And the psalmist is even wondering, does God even hear me? Verse 1 again. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And so the psalmist is worried here that God is deaf toward his cries. He's silent in his response which will leave him like, quote, those who go down to the pit. I don't want to be like those who go down to the pit. The pit is a word that's often used to describe Sheol, the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. Uh, in a couple of psalms later, this is Psalm 30 and verse 3, uh, it says, O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, and then the parallel line, you restored my life from those who go down to the pit. And so Sheol and the pit refer to the same thing. Now, I don't think in verses 1 and 2 he's talking about his fear of dying necessarily. Rather, he's worried he'll become like those who go down to the pit. And I think he's worried he'll be like those who go down to the pit in this way. The, the pit-dwelling dead are alone. They are apart from God. They are without answer to their cries. They are in a dank, dark, eerie burial place. I don't want to be like them. And when you're not answering me, I feel like I'm one of them. And so in verse 2, trying to avoid that pit-dwelling state, he cries out and he reaches out. What I imagine in verse 2, maybe the image being evoked in verse 2 is the picture of sort of a small child who's scared or hurt. What do kids do when they're scared or when they're hurt? Well, they cry out for mommy, they cry out for daddy, and they lift up their arms so they can be picked up. And if we want to carry on the pit imagery of verse 1, he's worried about falling into the pit. Maybe we can imagine him teetering on the edge, scared about what's about to, to happen to him, about to fall in. And so in verse 2, he cries out to get God's attention, and he reaches up for God to save him before he falls in. 
Also notice what he calls God in verse 1. He calls God my rock in the opening line of the psalm. It's a common description of God. It connotes strength, permanence. Rocks have been there a long time, and if it's a big rock, it's not going anywhere. So the wise men built this house upon the rock because the rock is going to be there. It's going to stand firm. It's going to have a foundation. And so the psalmist wants a steady God he can anchor himself to. Now, someone once pointed out to me in this description of God as rock, there may also be an echo here, or a hint, at two awfully important and giant rocks in the biblical story. One is Mount Zion, a giant rock, a giant mountain on which God gave his law. And the other, rather, one is Mount Sinai, the other is Mount Zion, the place where God's temple stood. And so I think it's fitting at the end of verse 2, the psalmist's attention is fixed on that rock, on God's sanctuary, the Mount Zion. He says, God, I'm teetering, but you are firm. You are my rock. I'm not sure where I am. I'm not sure where I'm headed, but I know exactly what you are and I, where you are, and I need you to be my rock. Now, he's described his worry about, about his, his standing before God, whether or not God has heard him. In verse 3, we get, a, we get more of a clue why the psalmist is in this state. This is verse 3. He says, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors, while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them up and build them up no more. So the problem here is wicked people, who in some way he finds himself entangled with. Um, the, 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 the biggest description of their wickedness, verse 3, is sort of a sinister deception. They say one thing. They speak peace. Well, it's really evil that was in their hearts all along. Some have guessed the psalmist was maybe in a covenant with these people, maybe a, a business arrangement, maybe sort of a political alliance, something. But the people he had dealt with had spoken one thing and then done another and then perhaps blamed the psalmist for the breach. And he's wrapped up in this whole situation in which he is innocent and they have been, they have been duplicitous and evil. And so his worry here is that he'll be caught up in this, in this evil situation, in this judgment bound to fall on them. He'll get lost in the tangle of lies. He'll be counted among the wicked, and he'll be drug off with them and suffer with them because of everything that's happened. And so his plea in verse 4 is that God's judgment will arrive, that God will come and he will untangle the web of lies and accusations, and he will give each of these evil men the reward they deserve. Now, also notice there's a few interesting things happening from verses 4 to 5. In verse 4, you'll notice it's a really desperate plea for judgment. While in verse 5, it turns into a more confident declaration that God's judgment is coming. And so suddenly in verse 5, he's talking about, yes, God will tear them down. Also notice things like this. In verse 4, these evil men, they are busy with their evil work. And in verse 5, all along, they're ignorant of the works of the Lord. They're busy at their evil schemes, and they're not thinking at all about what God is up to. In verse 4, they're busy with the work of their hands. In verse 5, they're ignorant of the work of God's hands. What the psalmist is saying is, you know, this way of things might work for a while, but it's not sustainable. The work of evil man's hands, evil men's hands, will only be tolerated so long by a righteous God. Men's unfaithfulness to their covenants will only be tolerated so long by a God who is utterly faithful to his covenant. And may I remind you, 
one of the curses, the covenant curses, was on those who failed to keep their covenants in God's covenant. There will come a day, this psalm says, when these wicked people will no longer be allowed to prosper. God will tear them down. And what the psalmist is praying is, it can't come a moment too soon. It's a prayer that judgment fall on people who deserve it. It's a prayer that has hair on its chest. And it's a biblical prayer. In the strictest sense of that phrase, it's a prayer found in the Bible. Now, the second half of the psalm switches somewhat. The psalm moves from petition to verse 6 suddenly, thanksgiving. Verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So in verse 6, the psalmist speaks suddenly as if his request has been answered. In verse 2, he cried out, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. And in verse 6, he affirms, He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Asked in verse 2, answered in verse 6. Perhaps we're supposed to imagine the author has sort of revisited his prayer at a later date. He has come back and revised the psalm, maybe. After he saw God act to judge, after he saw God answer his prayer, he appealed to God as my rock, back in verse 1. And in verse 7 he says, I found him to be even more than that. I found found him to be my strength, my shield. In other words, God isn't just steady, though he is that. He is also strong, he is active, he protects, he avenges. And also notice in verse 9, he he pays off the image of verse 2. So in verse 2, remember, he lifted up his hands like a desperate child, like a hurt child. He lifted up his hands seeking seeking rescue from the edge of the pit. In verse 9 he says, I've been lifted up and I've been carried by a strong and saving God. One more thing in the text. In verses 8 and 9, notice this. In verses 8 and 9, he broadens out the lesson of this psalm from his own specific situation to all of God's people, to all of God's nation. In verses 8 and 9, God isn't just my strength. He is the strength of his people, of all of his people. God hears the pleas not just of me, the psalmist, but of all of his people. God recognizes evil and injustice, not just in my case, but wherever it is. God discerns guilt and innocence. He untangles the web of lies and deception always, and he can always be counted on to save and bless his people forever. So can you see this is a psalm that revels in God's judgment? The psalmist cries out for it, and when he gets it, he is thankful, exuberantly. This is a psalm in the Bible. It is written and preserved that we may learn from it. And I'm going to argue this morning even emulate it. So I want to spend the last part of our study arguing this psalm with its love of God's judgment. This psalm is for us. It is for us to learn from. It is for us to understand God better. So I have a couple of just points for home. Number one, I want to say judgment means the distinction between good and evil actually matters. Judgment means the distinction between good and evil actually matters. So this this, uh, psalm, those who put the psalms in different genres, which is often difficult to do. But this could be put in the genre of imprecatory psalms. Um, An imprecation is a spoken curse. It is to wish ill 
on someone else. And there are a number of these in the Psalms, many actually, some of them much more graphic and even violent than this. Now, occasionally you will hear someone argue that these Psalms, these imprecations in the Old Testament and the, in the Psalms, these are just an Old Testament thing. Um, you know, this is the part of the Bible where God is always smiting everyone, and it's radically different from the grace-filled New Testament. Sometimes you will hear that argument. And I, I think there's a lot, of pro, uh, a lot of problems with that approach, a lot, a lot of um, difficulties. Uh, I think it creates more problems than it solves to say that. The God of the Old Testament is not different from the God of the New Testament. We need to affirm that, hardly. We affirm that um, emphatically and always. Um, you have to read both Testaments very selectively to prop up that caricature of God. So, so how do we understand these Psalms in light of a God who, who, yes, at other times is described as loving and merciful and righteous? What do we say? What are we saying about God here? Well, here's where we need to start. We need to start with a very fundamental affirmation, a very basic one that's easy, easy to take for granted. The Bible calls certain actions good and others evil. And the Bible calls people who do good things good, righteous, and it calls people who do evil things evil. And that fact necessitates and makes uh, necessitates judgment and it makes the desire for God's judgment to come to make apparent those differences, it makes that desire for God's judgment Appropriate. It makes the imprecation appropriate. Think about this. In, uh, in Eastern religions, Buddhism would be a prime example. God, or whatever their idea of God is, um, is, not, is, not a, is not a good God over against all, which is e- all that is evil. God is seen as beyond good and evil. Spiritual maturity is not a matter of choosing good over evil. It's not a matter of good winning over evil. Spiritual maturity is found in transcending those very categories of coming to understand the sort of the yin and the yang, the light and the dark. These are two equal and opposite things which will always exist and we kind of rise above all of that sort of thing. Now, if we were Buddhists, we had a Buddhist God, it would make sense to question God's judgment. It would make sense to question imprecations in which someone wishes for God's judgment because God is beyond those sorts of things. But the Bible insists... God is utterly good and in no way evil and in no way tolerant of evil, no way okay with evil. And therefore, he has always seen good and evil as matters of decisive importance. Those categories are so real and so important that God will one day, once and for all, divide the world along those lines. There's many passages we could turn to and look at, I just want to mention very briefly three parables found in Matthew's Gospel which make this point repeatedly. Jesus, a New Testament guy, is talking about God's judgment. In the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, he speaks of a giant tangle of wheat and weeds growing together until they are finally separated at harvest, judged between them. Later in Matthew 13, there's the parable of the dragnet, which speaks of all kinds of fish wriggling around together in a fisherman's net, until the boat reaches the shore and the fisherman then judges between them. He sorts out those which are good and those which are not. In Matthew 25, there's the parable of the sheep and the goats, which paints a picture of sheep and goats grazing together by day, but at night the shepherd separates them to their different sleeping quarters. He judges between them which are sheep and which are goats. In the same way, Jesus says, God will judge between those those who are his flock and those who are not his flock. 
All these parables play off the fact that good and evil seem inextricably intertwined in our world and in our experience. Like the psalmist, we are mired in a, in a world full of sin, and, and at times we wonder, does God hear? Does God care? Is God going to do anything about it? But God's people find motivation and comfort in the fact God will judge. He will sort through the mess of the world. He will untangle this Gordian knot of sin. And in his perfect judgment, he will determine who are his and who are not. Jesus affirms good and evil. These are not a a yin and a yang sort of thing. Two equal and opposite uh, characteristics which exist in tension forever. They're not on par with each other. They don't both belong. God is good. He created a good world. And he is too committed to his world, to his creation, to leave it forever ruined by evil. And so those parables say there will be a sorting out. So let me just share the punchline of each of these three parables. Here's the ending of the parable of the weeds, the wheat and the weeds. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, judgment is the punchline of the parable. The imprecation that the psalmist is praying, God, come judge, the end of the parable says, it's happening. The ending of the parable of the dragnet goes like this. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil, separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Judgment is the punchline. It answered to the psalmist's prayer. The ending of the parable of the sheep and the goats before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Judgment is the punchline of the parable. Had the psalmist been a thousand years younger, had the psalmist heard these parables of Jesus, he would have taken comfort in Jesus' parables of judgment. He would have heard Jesus say those things and he would have said, yes. God has heard the pleas of his people the, the, the pleas of his people who are struggling, uh, struggling under evil. He has promised to do something about it. And this is good news. All the psalmist is doing is wishing for this judgment, that, for, for judgment in, in what he's up against. All he's doing is, is wishing that the judgment of God would fall sooner rather than later. Good and evil are real. That's the assumption behind this psalm. Good and evil are real, and evil cannot stand forever. Judgment is God's amen to that truth. And I think it is always appropriate to pray that God do something he has promised he will do. It is always appropriate to pray, God, your will be done, and God's will is to judge evil. And an implication is simply a wish that God will fulfill his will in that way. What judgment means, how we make sense of these sorts of psalms, is that good and evil actually matter, and judgment is God's amen to that truth. Number two, judgment is delayed to make room for mercy. Let me ask you to turn to one more passage. This is 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. So the relationship between God's judgment and God's mercy, this is a really big topic, and we're not going to explore every aspect of that. But I do want to end with a passage that does connect the two in what I think is a very helpful way, and in a way that sheds light on this psalm. This is 2 Peter 3, in which Peter is um, dialoguing with some skeptics. This is uh, 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. 
2 Peter 3 and verse 3. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so Peter here is, is, uh, is, is, is imagining some scoffers. People who come along and say, you know, I hear you Christians always talking about Jesus returning, God judging, God sorting all this out. He's going to save you. He's going to judge the world. But the scoffers say, you know what? From the way I see it, the world just keeps going on. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, nothing has changed. How much longer are you going to spend waiting on a God who keeps not coming back and who keeps not doing what he said? How many disappointments are you willing to put up with? At some point, aren't you going to come over to my position, the scoffer says. Well, Peter answers the scoffers in a number of ways. I want to skip down to verse 8. He says this to them, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter answers the scoffers, you know, you've confused the fact that God hasn't come back yet with the idea that God isn't coming back at all. He asks, what about the mere passing of time makes a promise any less true? Especially in light of the fact that God is an eternal God. And that time as we understand it and experience it is nothing like God's experience with time. No, he says in verse 9, the true explanation for the delay in God's judgment is that God is being patient. He will return to bring judgment. But the account for his delay is that he is waiting as long as he can so that as many people as possible will make their lives right before it's too late. What he's saying to Scoffer is, you know, his delay in coming, that should make you grateful and repentant. It should not make you skeptical and sinful. So I'm not sure how much time passed between the first and second half of Psalm 28. You remember halfway through the psalm, he, he switches from a desperate plea for God's mercy to then a thanksgiving that God's, or a plea for God's judgment and then a thanksgiving that God's judgment arrived. I'm not sure how much time passed between the first and second half. But if there happened to be a long delay between those two halves of the psalm, Peter's encouragement to Christians a thousand, year, a thousand years later would have lent an explanation to that delay. God is perfectly just and holy and good. He cannot let evil continue unabated forever. It is against his very nature. Judgment is promised in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus speaks of judgment repeatedly and more graphically than anyone else in the Bible. The psalmist rightly assumed God would judge evil and he hoped that he would bring that judgment against his wicked assayer sooner rather than later. But Peter says, in the meantime, if God hasn't acted yet, if God hasn't judged yet, the explanation is that his delay is intentional and it is merciful. So I'd like to end with words from another psalm. Surprising words about how God's people ought to think about God's judgment. It's Psalm 98 and verse 8. It says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. This is why creation is so exuberant. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. So talk of God's judgment usually sounds to us scary and ominous. It's not something that usually tastes sweet to us the first time we hear about it. But in the Bible, 
over and over again, judgment is constantly good news for God's people. Because what judgment really means is a fixing of all that's been broken, a righting of everything that is wrong, a vindication, the salvation of all those who are struggling to serve God amidst workers of evil like the psalmist. It's something God's people learn to love. And genuine Christianity, genuine Christian maturity, always involves learning to love all of who God is. Not just the parts of God that we like, not just the aspects of his character that superficially comfort us the first time we hear about them. Genuine Christianity, genuine Christian maturity involves learning to love all of who God is. God is a God of judgment, and God's people learn to love that he is. And so we're about to sing a, uh, an invitation song, which asks the question, are you ready for the judgment day? One of the verses goes like this. There's a bright day coming by and by, but its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? It's a song about God's judgment, and it's a song that rightly says for God's people it's a bright day, and it's a good day. But in order for it to have that bright character, We have to be one of his people. So maybe there's someone here this morning that realizes that judgment is a scary proposition. It's not something you take comfort in, and that's because you are not ready for judgment. If you need to make your life right with God this morning, we invite you to do it right now as we stand and sing. There's a great day coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? There's a bright day coming, a bright day coming, there's a bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? There's a sad day coming, a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom depart, I know ye not. Are you ready for that day? to come. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day?